The Great Depression was a catastrophic event that affected a generation of Americans coast to coast, from young to old, rich to poor, but especially the middle class. It bankrupted Wall Street financiers to average investors on Main Street. The Great Depression changed all facets of life. When the stock market euphoria of the 1920s ended in a bust, on Black Tuesday, October 29, 1929, it sent shockwaves across the economy, which soon went into a deep spiral. Businesses and consumers pulled back. As businesses shuttered, unemployment soared to double digits, causing economic malaise. The image of long lines to the soup kitchens. Which served hungry men, women, and children, along with shanty towns, scattered folks who lost their homes, continue to sear into our collective memory. In nearly every state of the union, banks were forced to shut down as Americans lined up to get their cash savings out of panic. A sense of uncertainty crippled the nation. Americans were asking, "Would there be a way out?" Are there better days ahead? That was the state of the nation when Franklin Delano Roosevelt emerged as the 32nd president of the United States and became the longest-serving chief executive in our history. I'm your host, D.T. Du. In this episode, we'll focus on how the Roosevelt administration dealt with unprecedented dangers facing the United States, just like his predecessors. George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, and Winter Wilson, Franklin Roosevelt clearly recognized the necessity of a strong presidential office in order to marshal the resources of the federal government to help his countrymen. To walk us through President Roosevelt's legacy and the lessons learned from the Great Depression, we're joined with Mr. Sean Crosby. A labor economist based out of Washington D.C., he has been a longtime observer of presidential history and American economic history. Mr. Crosby studied economics at the American University in Washington D.C., where politics and civic activism are part of campus culture. To this day, he still shows that passion and often looks to history to make sense of how America. Got to where we are today. The following is my interview with Mr. Crosby. The Roosevelt presidency was truly an era by itself because he was a transformative figure who led the country through tumultuous times. The only president to be elected for four terms. Is highly regarded by historians and ranked high by Americans for his steady leadership, steering the country through the Great Depression and World War II. But was he always the charismatic individual we know him to be? What was his path like to the highest office in the land? Did he come from a prosperous family of social elites, groomed for national politics? Or did he come from a humble background with no exposure to business and politics?
Well, FDR was certainly, uh, he certainly grew up in a very wealthy family. Um, he was not groomed for politics, but he uh, was brought up in the Roosevelt family, one of the most prominent um, families in New York State. Um, his uncle, uh, Teddy Roosevelt, became president of the United States. So there was some, there was some connection to politics there that, that certainly influenced him. Um, and then after his university days, he basically became a lawyer. And his first run for office was actually as a New York State Senator. The uh, local Democratic Party basically recruited him to run for New York State Senator in 19, uh, and he won in 1910. He was there from 1910 to 1913. And um, you have to understand that in those days, there wasn't a ton of ideological differences between the parties. So each party had a progressive side, both the Democrats and the Republicans. And uh, Teddy Roosevelt was a Republican. And uh, Franklin wanted to run as a Republican, but um, it was only by virtue of the fact that these local Democrats recruited him that he ended up being a Democrat. And that ultimately had the effect of changing American political history later on down the line. So after his days as a New York State Senator, he becomes um, Assistant Secretary of the Navy uh, under the Wilson administration, which is a position that he really uh, enjoyed and threw himself into. And it was also, he's, he's following a similar career trajectory to Teddy Roosevelt, because he had also been Assistant Secretary of the Navy. And then after, um, after the Assistant Secretary of the Navy, he was basically tapped to be the vice presidential nominee for the uh, Democratic nominee in 1920, um, a guy by the name of James M. Cox, who was uh, roundly defeated by Warren Harding in the 1920 election. And um, after that, uh, his career took very much took a stumble because he was diagnosed with polio very shortly after the 1920 election. And so he spent the next seven years basically trying to cure himself, even though there was no polio vaccine at that time. He uh, went to a, a facility in a rural Georgia, uh, Warm Springs, Georgia, and uh, from there, he was able to actually speak to a lot of rural farmers, uh, workers. He spoke to them about their concerns in the even in the roaring uh, economy of the 1920s. There was a farm crisis during that time. So it is through this experience at Warm Springs that he is able to connect with the um, with the common man. And some historians have speculated that it was this experience that really kind of made him, you know, have, if not more empathy, more of just like a concern, basically a knowledge of the concerns of working class people that would later, you know, animate his uh, presidency. And so basically, so after his experience in Georgia, you know, on and off. He re-enters politics. He, th he thought his political career was over when he got polio because 
in those days, it was just not, it was, he thought it was very unlikely that a person with disabilities would be elected to anything, never mind the presidency. But he becomes a governor of New York. He's tapped to be, he's tapped to run for the governor of New York uh, by um, one of his uh, kind of political operators, a guy by the name of Louis Howe, really encourages him to, to do this. Um, and also his mother was very concerned that he was just going to uh, waste away, and Eleanor Roosevelt too. So he runs for governor of New York, wins by one percentage point, and uh, he, beco he becomes governor at about the time that the Great Depression is starting to, is starting to um, show its effects. And as governor, he basically starts a series of proposals that would lay the foundations of the New Deal, um, including a state employment bureau, um, unemployment insurance, etc. And so that is basically how, and, and then of course in 1932, he decides to run for president. And at that time, becoming the governor of New York, that was, you know, the largest state in the union, the most politically important a largest state in the union in terms of population that was considered to be a stepping stone to the presidency um and so he uh runs for the democratic nomination in 1932 and he is opposed by um al smith who was the guy who lost horribly to herbert hoover in 1928 uh conservative democrat uh, they were friends, but they ultimately had this huge falling out. Um, and it did not, FDR did not win until the fourth ballot. Um, he was not the first choice by any means. And the old convention rules meant that the delegates could basically vote for whoever they wanted. So, but at the end of it, he becomes the nominee. And because of the, because the Republican Party is in the position of just doing an abysmal job dealing with the depression. The, uh, the Democrats rock Hoover, Herbert Hoover in a landslide. And uh, the Democrats had not won the presidency since 1916 when Wilson won. Um, and so uh, this starts a transformation in American politics that The Roaring Twenties was the period from 1920 to 1929 that marked a time of significantly increased prosperity in the United States. People and businesses benefited from the democratization of investments and new mass technologies like the radio and communication networks. There was pent-up demand following the end of World War I. Families were increasing the consumption of durable goods, including the automobile. People were buying homes and stocks. The stock market was booming and increasingly popular with retail investors. Then the stock market crashed. What was the precursor to the economic calamity? What were the events and factors that led to the Great Depression?
great economic expansion that was mainly a result of the fact that you had the Great War, you had World War One, and of course during World War, during wartime there was a lot of pent up demand as there as there is in many wars, and as soon as that was over, there was uh, new technologies that people could purchase. And to, to, in order to spend money on, there was sort of like the first, it was almost like the first modern consumer boom, the way we would, we would recognize it. And all of this is happening at a time when the markets are very unregulated. The Wall Street is basically the Wild West at this time. There's no Securities and Exchange Commission, for example, that would come under FDR's administration. So this economic boom eventually leads to speculation, financial speculation, assets that are far overvalued. And this boom eventually leads to the boom. We would say that the peak of the economic activity was in the summer of 1929. And then after that, it starts to wobble. And the stock market crash in October of 29 is the catalyst for the economic downfall. And this um, creates a condition that many people had never, ever seen before. Almost immediately, you have a drop in payrolls. It started off relatively modest and then greatly accelerates over the next two or three years. Just to give you a brief example of what I'm talking about, between 1929 and 1932, industrial production declined by 46%. So output from industry decimated. Wholesale prices dropped 32%. So just a complete demand shock. Foreign trade falls by 70%. It's almost unimaginable. It's hard to think about today, but there's just this breakup of international trade that is not helped by the Hoover administration and their tariffs. And unemployment rises 607%. So you're looking at a situation that is a complete disaster by the time you get to 1933, in which you have about 25% unemployment. Just to put that into context, when uh, last year during the coronavirus uh, pandemic, the unemployment rate was about 14% in April of 2020. And so this is about 11 points higher than that. So we're looking at a situation in which people just cannot find work because factories have shuttered and banks are also facing difficulties because of the lack of um, the lack of investment. And so they are also, so there's bank closures all across the country. It's one of the things that the administration first tackles when they get in in 1933. 
when the economy tanked, Franklin Roosevelt was not president yet. It was Herbert Hoover who was in the White House. Prior to becoming president, Herbert Hoover had a long, distinguished career as a businessman, engineer, and public official. But shortly after Hoover assumed the presidency, the stock market crashed in 1929, when the real economy took a hard hit. Unemployment rose, housing foreclosures came, many middle-class men struggled, and even became homeless. Shanty towns that emerged were dubbed Hoovervilles. Certainly not a kind association to President Hoover. How did the Hoover administration respond to the onset of the Great Depression? They just did not have the kind of imagination to deal with this at all,、mm-hmm. and they very much relied on the conventional economic thinking of the day, which was a very laissez-faire, hands-off attitude towards、uh, the markets.、Um, there wasn't really a discipline, a modern discipline, I should say, of macroeconomics, and so a lot of the tools that are sort of Second nature to policymakers today were not available to them, or they were, or you know, any sort of experimentation was looked at with some skepticism by the economics profession and the people who were advising the Hoover administration. So they did again, as I said before, as I mentioned earlier, tariffs. They thought that that might, you know, because there was a point in which. This was、uh, blamed on the foreign markets and not the domestic economy, so that was kind of a way to, they thought, to mitigate the downturn. They also pushed for、um, for businesses to keep increasing wages,、uh, which you know is not a bad thing, of course, in and of itself. But when you are having A depression of this magnitude, with no other government support for industry,、um, you're going to reach a point in which that is not sustainable, and so businesses do start laying off workers on mass, and the unemployment rate shoots up. So that had very little effect. They did tinker a little bit with, you know, early like state level relief, but it was not. It was nothing. It was not a national. Robust program like the New Deal,、mm. and that's why they're going into 1932. The Republicans are going into 1932 in deep trouble.、Mm. Hoover is very unpopular. Again, as you mentioned, Hoovervilles like people had a visceral hatred for the man by the end.、Mm. So. Franklin Roosevelt was inaugurated as the 32nd United States President on Saturday, March 4, 1933, at the East Portico of the United States Capitol in Washington D.C. There were thousands of people present, but the real audience were millions of Americans listening on the radio. That was the mass medium at the time. 
when the transition of power shifted from Herbert Hoover to FDR, how did that change the outlook for the country? What did the economic landscape look like when FDR was inaugurated in March of 1933? And what did FDR want to communicate to the country? A quarter of the workforce was unemployed. So, you know, farmers were in deep trouble as prices had fallen by 60%. Um, industrial production, again, uh, two million people were homeless. And um, on the evening of March 4, 32 of the 48 states, as well as DC, had closed their banks. So, we're not talking about a few bank closures, we're talking about most of the states in the country are experiencing these kinds of bank closures. So it was just a terrible situation all around. And many people did not know exactly what to do about it. Other than cosmetic things, most of them cosmetic that were done around the edges and did not tackle the true macro effects of this. Like there was only so much that private charities were going to do. There was only so much that, you know, these, these, you know, statewide relief efforts were going to accomplish. And that had been in economic downturns of the past, that had been what people mainly turned to for relief. You know, you had churches, you had um, various types of private charity, but those were not going to be sufficient to deal with the magnitude of this crisis. It was a grim landscape, and FDR understood that public psychology. He was empathetic to people's concerns. But it was striking that even then, in that environment, Roosevelt was calm, collective, and even optimistic. Historians often mention that Franklin Roosevelt had oratory power and an ability to connect with people. How did he use the bully pulpit, the office of the presidency, to advance his agenda? FDR, for example, used radio addresses to directly appeal to the American people during tough times and when there are important initiatives the government was rolling out. These radio addresses became known as fireside chats. People felt doing those addresses like he was sitting right there in the living room talking to them. You know, as soon as he got into office, the first thing they actually had to do was to solve the banking crisis because banks were just failing all over the place. All over the country, there were bank closures. There was no um, federal deposit. Uh, there was no FDIC. And so people just lost their money. The government did not insure the deposits um, of, of, of depositors in those days. One of the things that changes with Roosevelt. So he called a bank holiday 
um, special session of, and this was done by a special session of Congress, um, a four-day bank holiday. Close the banks, rushes them new capital, and then reopens them. And when he did that, stock prices went up, and the banks start to uh, recover that lost capital. Um, so that was the first thing that had to be done, or, or else nothing else was going to function. He was definitely the first president to make use of radio uh, in, in the fashion that he did, because presidents before that, I mean, radio was still a very new technology. And there were a lot of, and in the 1920s, there were still a lot of people who didn't have it. It didn't become ubiquitous until the Great Depression era, actually, because they were inexpensive the prices for radios have gone way down so even the the poor and the destitute could get a radio in, in their home so this was an excellent way to reach the masses and roosevelt used that to great um it, it was it was used that to great um political effect and in to rally people in support of his programs this was a great way to speak directly to that. It was almost like the Twitter of the 1930s. He was able to basically go on there and talk directly to people and not have to speak to them through newspapers, which were often filtered, um, ideologically filtered by the rich people who owned them to be against the New Deal. And so this was just a way to speak directly to voters, rally them. And he also, uh, these were known as fireside chats, which he actually had started when he was governor of New York. It was not something that he started when he was president. It's something that he continued from his, uh, from his gubernatorial days, which he also did with great effect when he was governor. So this was a new way that a president could that any political leader could speak directly to people and also rally them to political causes and so it kind of created a mass political culture as well around the new deal and a, and a mass political consensus around it too eventually In his inaugural address, Franklin Delano Roosevelt told the American people that the only thing they have to fear is fear itself, for he presents to the country a new deal, his signature domestic program. It was FDR's promise to dig the country out of the Depression. How did the new deal come about? Was it a program that FDR came up with by himself when he got into the White House? Or is it the result of ideas or a collection of proposals coming together that began before he was president? Did FDR have a team of economic advisors or administrators, those working behind the scenes to spearhead this unprecedented 
rescue effort. It has often been said by historians that the New Deal was kind of created day by day. That's not really accurate because FDR, when he was governor of New York, actually did implement various measures that would become familiar to the rest of the country during the New Deal implementation, such as unemployment insurance. He did a state-level relief plan, basically giving money to people. And so it was not entirely new when he got into the White House from when he was in Albany. And those programs were very popular in New York. And so there was an aspect of it that was created in the moment, but there was also an act. He was also coming from a foundation. And so basically on his second day in office, he declared a four day national bank holiday to deal with the banking crisis and called for a special session of Congress to start March 9th, in which, on which date Congress passed the Emergency Banking Act. And the act, which was based on a plan, was actually based on a plan developed by the Hoover administration and Wall Street bankers. So they did have some you know, hand in this. Gave the president the power to determine the opening and closing of banks and authorized the Federal Reserve Bank to issue banknotes. The ensuing first 100 days of the 73rd Congress saw an unprecedented amount of legislation and set a benchmark against which future presidents would be compared. When the banks reopened on Monday, March 15th, stock prices rose by 15% and bank deposits exceeded withdrawals, thus ending the bank panic. On March 22nd, Roosevelt signed the Cullen-Harrison Act which also effectively ended federal prohibition, which was, people don't think about this, but which was also a drain on economic life. People could now go to bars, restaurants, have alcohol, open breweries, etc. The New Deal was a massive undertaking and had broad reach. What was the impact of the New Deal on the United States economy? Did it make a real difference for the millions of people who needed real relief, aid, and a path to employment? How did the new programs provide relief and jobs for the jobless? like the Civilian Conservation Corps. Who helped run those programs and bring it to fruition, ultimately helping the hundreds and thousands of men and women on conservation and infrastructure projects? Roosevelt presided over the establishment of several agencies and measures designed to provide relief for the unemployed and others in need. The Federal Emergency Relief Administration, under the leadership of Harry Hopkins, 
was designed to distribute relief to state governments. The Public Works Administration, under the leadership of Secretary of, Secretary of the Interior Harold Ickes, was created to oversee the construction of large-scale public works such as dams, bridges, and schools. The most popular of all New Deal agencies, and actually Roosevelt's favorite, was the Civilian Conservation Corps, which you alluded to, which hired a quarter of a million unemployed young men to basically work on local rural projects. Basically, uh, the government giving jobs to people, which was actually fairly revolutionary then. It had, that had not been tried on such a large national scale. Uh, Roosevelt also expanded a Hoover agency, the Reconstruction Finance Corporation, making it a major source of financing for railroads and industry. Congress gave the Federal Trade Commission uh, broad new regulatory powers and provided mortgage relief to millions of farmers and homeowners. Roosevelt also made agricultural relief a high priority and set up the Agricultural Adjustment Administration. The AAA tried to force higher prices for commodities by paying farmers to leave land uncultivated and to cut herds, which is a practice that is still done today with a lot of rural subsidy. Uh, reform of the economy was the goal of the uh, National Industrial Recovery Act. Uh, it sought to end competition by forcing industries to establish rules of operation for all firms within specific industries. Not so much competition per se, but, you know, 1920s competition was extremely uh, cutthroat. They took laissez-faire very seriously. And basically this provided agreement on minimum prices agreements not to compete in certain scenarios and production restrictions so there would not be a crisis of overproduction of certain goods um, industry leaders negotiated the rules which were approved by the uh, government officials industry needed to raise wages as a condition for this approval and uh, provisions encouraged unions and suspended antitrust laws so one quick thing which is that this was very controversial this was a very controversial part of the new deal and it was found to be unconstitutional by unanimous decision de decision of the supreme court in may 1935. roosevelt strongly protested the decision roosevelt reformed the financial regulatory structure of the nation so i alluded I discussed earlier that in the 1920s, finance was basically unregulated. It was basically like the Wild West. But what happens under Roosevelt is that the Glass-Steagall Act gets passed, and this creates the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, the FDIC, which is still something we have today, to underwrite savings deposits. In those days, if you lost your money in the bank there the government did not guarantee it and so this is what caused a lot of the bank runs not just during the great depression but bank runs used to be a fairly normal 
part of recessions and economic downturns. From the you know 19th century, there's famous bank runs in the 1870s during that depression. So this effectively creates more stability in the banking sector. The act also sought to curb speculation by limiting affiliations between commercial banks and securities firms, which was, as a quick side note, when this when Glass-Steagall was undone in the 1990s, that directly led to the one of the things that directly led to the Great Recession of 2007, 2009. In 1934, the Securities and Exchange Commission was created to regulate the trading of securities, also something we still have today, while the Federal Communications Commission was established to regulate telecommunications, also something we still have today, but it doesn't have the same kind of teeth that it once did back in the post uh, the 1930s and the post-war period. And recovery was largely pursued through federal spending, again, not through private individuals or charities. The, uh, the Naira included $3.3 which was equivalent to $65 billion in 2019 dollars of spending through the Public Works Administration. Roosevelt worked, to, worked with Senator Norris to create the largest government-owned industrial enterprise in American history, the Tennessee Valley Authority which built dams and power stations, controlled floods, and modernized agriculture and home conditions in the poverty-stricken Tennessee Valley. Executive Order 6102 declared that all privately held gold of American citizens was to be sold to the U.S. Treasury, and the price raised from $20, $20 to $35 per ounce. The goal was to counter the deflation, which we talked about earlier, which was paralyzing the economy again massive reduction of prices during this time. For modern presidents and leaders in business and government who want to take bold actions, what can they learn about the New Deal? Granted, we live in a very different world today. The economy is very interconnected marked by rapid innovations in business and technology, which shapes the conduct of society and how we work. Yet, there are issues that still remain unsolved, similar to what Franklin Roosevelt faced, the oversized influence of Wall Street institutions, the question about the role of government in stimulating the economy during a downturn, the issue of increasing inequality and urban poverty are very relevant still, as well as sustained unemployment, fair wages, and social support for workers and families when tough times hit. What can we learn about the presidential leadership of Franklin Roosevelt? Well, I think that one of the things that we can definitely learn is that policymakers should not be timid when dealing with crises. And you mentioned that there is a lot of innovation in the current, more global, interconnected economy, although the economy was fairly global in the 1920s too. 
And the, however, there was a, also a lot of innovation in the 1920s. And there was a lot of innovation in the 19th century. Technology, arguably more actually in terms of goods and technologies that changed life forever and completely. And I think that I think that policymakers should not be should not afraid should not be afraid to make these kinds of national decisions. Maybe sometimes in, in conjunction with other governments around the world, in order to curb the excesses of capitalism. And I mentioned unions. Roosevelt's position on unions, which was quite new in the, uh, the 1930s, the United States has always been a fairly anti-union country, but in the 1920s, the labor movement had basically been decimated. And Roosevelt, by signing the Wagner Act, basically gave American workers the right to unionize. And that is another thing that policymakers need to prioritize if workers are to have protection and to have fair wages. And I think that the whole the whole mindset of government spending which became conventional wisdom, government spending to cure economic downturns which became conventional wisdom after this time is still with us. I mean when when Keynesianism started to wane in the 1970s, it's not like governments got out of the business of stimulating the, stimulating the economy. They always have, but it isn't always to the benefit of working people or to giving people money so that they can live and even to put into the consumer economy in some cases. We're starting to see changes to that now because of the coronavirus epidemic. But those are some of the biggest issues I would say that policymakers need to be cognizant of is to go bold, do not be afraid of big numbers when it comes to government spending, and to give workers the right to uh, organize so that they can be treated fairly and to have higher wages. For economic and other university students, what insights can they draw about this historic period? What should the curriculum and discourse include to better train the future generations of economists, potential leaders, and public servants? One can't miss the macroeconomic textbooks discourse, the relevance of John Minor Keynes, since he is considered the father of modern macroeconomics. Though the British economist wasn't a direct advisor of Franklin Roosevelt, John Minor Keynes was very supportive of FDR's approach to address the Great Depression, which he detailed in an open letter from across the Atlantic in the New York Times addressed to the 32nd United States President. Today, economic students often learn, though masked in equations and graphs, that Keynes was zealously concerned 
with solving the greatest ills of capitalism: economic instability that leads to unemployment. When consumers, households don't have confidence in the direction of the economy, it drags down aggregate demand. Businesses shed jobs, do not hire or make investments in projects, which further creates a downward spiral. And that slowdown that undermines people's confidence and increases uncertainty. In which case, the unfettered free market will not be able to self-correct. The economic slump. You mentioned John Maynard Keynes, and I had mentioned Keynesianism's decline as a、um, as an intellectual fad in the 1970s. It is very much still a part of basic macroeconomics. It is modern macroeconomics. And I think that when I was a student, I would have appreciated to have more of this historical context for sure. I actually pursued much of this on my own, and I think that economic students need to have a firmer grasp of the historical context of the development of their discipline. I think that is sorely lacking, but. I think that there's another aspect too, which is that Keynesianism and modern macroeconomics, while sophisticated and offering many policy solutions that are still applicable and that provide a great amount of social welfare, has limitations, and it had limitations that was that were. Historically contingent within the economic situation of the 1970s, which are not as present today, but they were also. It was a theory that had capitalism in mind. So, Keynesianism was the, in some ways, the center position between、uh, laissez-faire capitalism and communism. That's how many of the earliest thinkers in the Keynesian school did think about it, including Keynes. And I think that that is also—I think we do need to transcend that in some ways. I think that there are possibilities for economic growth and economic stability, government spending. But that offer something even more than the Keynesian model in terms of equity and in terms of price stability and so on.